Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture is Exodus 1, 1-7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. You may be seated. Well, before we pray this morning, if you didn't pick up on it, uh, we are beginning a new series uh, in Exodus today. And so if you're new or visiting, you came at the exact right time. And earlier this week, speaking of that email list, I sent out an email with all resources to help supplement your reading in the book of Exodus this year. So we will be in Exodus all of 2024. We're taking breaks, don't worry, at you know, appropriate times. Uh, but we'll be in Exodus all of 2024. If you want that email uh, resource list, again, reach out to me and I can send that to you. Second thing, if you haven't got one already, at the back connect table, we have these uh, Exodus scripture journals. Uh, and so what we want you to do is we want you to take that and follow along this year. In that scripture journal, we have the text, we have God's word, and on the other page, we have a margin for notes. And it's super helpful that as I'm speaking and Paul's speaking and others are speaking, as you're learning at community group, uh, that you're engaged with God's Word in an in-depth way. And so if you're an adult here or you're eager to have one, make sure you do take one of those Scripture journals. There are more under the table, Louisa, if you need more Scripture journals. We have a bunch back there. If you don't have a pen, I'm sorry. I think we're out of pens. That's okay. Anyways, take one, keep one. It's our gift to you. Actually, that's not true. It costs $5. Uh, and so if you have $5, it's a suggested donation. Uh, if you don't have it this week, bring it next week. If you don't have it at all, it's suggested so you can ignore it. Uh, and so um, we're not looking to make money off this. Just cover some costs. Okay. Can I pray? Let me pray. Probably wise. Father, we do thank you uh, for your word this morning. Even uh, the word that we've already sung. Uh, for the words that we've had pronounced over us and pronounced together as your people back to you. Lord, we need your forgiveness and your assurance of salvation probably more than we recognize right now. And so help us, Jesus. Help us by your spirit to hear exactly what you have from us in your word. Would you grow large in our hearts, Jesus? Would we be consumed by you as your people. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Imagine you had a condition where you, you woke each morning not knowing who you were or what you were doing 
or, or how you had gotten there. Thankfully, on your bedside table, there is a letter, uh, and on that letter is the story of you. It's a story of you. What would you include in that letter? What would be in that letter? What people, what places would you mention? What triumphs? What tragedies? If you were to read through the Bible, if you were to read through the, both the Old and the New Testament, you would find that the people of God have such a letter. They have such a letter. And at the center of this letter, at the center of this story, intended to be repeated often to fight their reoccurring amnesia, there lies an event. There lies an event. And maybe you can guess what that is. But the event which defines the people of God from old to new is, is the exodus. It's the exodus. So when God's people are tempted to think that the harvest was the result of their hard labor and their hard labor alone, they're tempted to forget God's grace. In Deuteronomy 26, they're instructed to remember the exodus. And in Joshua when there's a, a, a leadership transition, and always as it happens, when there's a leadership transition, the people kind of fall off, right? They're tempted to remember, or they're told rather to remember the, the Exodus story, how God was faithful to them, and they ought to be faithful to him now. And when they're being hauled off into exile, and they're seemingly without hope, the prophet Isaiah says, you know what, remember the Exodus. Just as God saved you from Egypt, he can save you from Babylon. Over and over again, the people of God were commanded to restory their lives. Restory all they'd experienced. In both good times and bad, success and failures, the Exodus story was central to reminding an Israelite just who they were. As we come to the book of Exodus, a book we'll explore throughout 2024, the invitation, likewise, is twofold to us this year. First, to see who God has revealed himself to be. And second, to learn who we are in view of the exodus that God has orchestrated in Christ in our lives. In a world where in our confusion we are grasping desperately for, for some sort of identity to ground us. Exodus invites us beyond superficial labels, beyond cultural moments, and invites us to see just who we have become and just who we can become in Jesus. Today, in this first sermon, in these first seven verses of this book, we're going to begin by orientating ourselves to the world, the bigger picture of Exodus, and then to two major themes in this book. And so if you're taking notes, if you want to write this in your scripture journal, our three points this morning are really simple. God's faithfulness, God's people, and God's land. Are you with me? Kind of? It's a start, guys. We've got to start off strong, at least. We're going to peter off towards the end. I know it, but we've got to start off strong, okay? Here it is. Point one, God's faithfulness. Bible's open. Scripture journal's open. Exodus 1. I want us to read the first five verses of this book again. And when we do read those first five verses, it becomes immediately apparent, doesn't it, that we're being invited into a story that has already begun, that has already started. So look at these verses with me. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, 
all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. The, the Hebrew title for the book of Exodus is not Exodus. That, that's a Greek title we get later on in the history of the church. The, the Hebrew title for the book of Exodus is actually a publisher's nightmare. It's, it's not very sexy. It's not very winsome. Uh, like most Old Testament books, the title is just how the book begins. So, so the Hebrew title for the book of Exodus is, ready for it? And these are the names. <laughs> that, that, that's the title of the book. And these are the names. Now, interestingly, though, that little word and clues to us, signals to us that something has come before, doesn't it? You don't start off a, a, a new journey and. No, and says, I'm continuing something, a book that's already been written, a story that's already started. M more than that, though, the biggest clue that we're being invited into this ongoing story are, are the names of people. In the first verse alone, the author expects us to know that when he says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, that he's actually talking about the same person, a person whose name was Jacob, and then God changed it to Israel. There's a story there that he expects us to be familiar with. What's more, we should ask as good readers, who are these sons of Israel slash Jacob? Besides being names of kids in our children's ministry, who is Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Benjamin and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher? Who are these guys? And, and why did they come to Egypt with a guy named Jacob? And who is Joseph? And, and why was he already in Egypt? Did he catch an earlier train? <laughs> to, to answer these questions this week and throughout our journey, we must recognize that Exodus has to be understood, like the whole Bible, but has to be understood in its wider context, in its wider story. See, Exodus is part of a larger group of books in the Bible called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, which just means five books or five scrolls. And it begins with the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of our Bible are the Pentateuch. These five scrolls, these five books. We could think of Exodus then like a chapter in this book, the Pentateuch, in a wider library, which is the Bible. One book, the Pentateuch, in the wider library telling one story called the Bible. And while at points we will look ahead to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we'll have to look ahead. Today, though, in Exodus 1, we're being called to look back. See, in Genesis, we first encounter this family that's named in Exodus 1. So you know when you queue up your favorite show at night, and it really annoyingly begins with the recap, even though you've been binging it, so you know what just happened, you literally just finished, and begins with the recap. I'm going to attempt, <coughs> sorry, I'm going to attempt right now to do that kind of recap for us this morning, okay? Not in 30 seconds, hopefully in two minutes, more likely in four minutes, okay? Here's the recap of the book of Genesis to get us uh, on the same page. Genesis 1 to 11 are cosmic in scope, like cosmic in scope. They tell us that God created the world. They tell us how humanity rebelled against God. They talk about how God judged the rebellion of humanity with a flood. 
but that doesn't cure humanity. Eventually, humanity uh, continues to rise up in rebellion against God, sort of apexing, climaxing in Genesis 11, with, with them building a tower in their pride and their arrogance opposed to God. We'll see that next week in Exodus 2, this tower being, you know, referenced to. But in Genesis 12, th- this cosmic scope kind of narrows down considerably. Considerably. The narrator moves from having us consider the whole world to having us consider one family. And really, one man named Abraham, or eventually, Abraham. It's with Abraham that God promises to accomplish his good purpose in this world. And from this little, insignificant, almost nobody people, God promises supernaturally, miraculously, providentially, amazingly, to bring blessing and flourishing to the whole world. From this one man and his offspring, God promises blessing to the whole world. From Abraham, we come to Isaac, and from Isaac, we come to Jacob. And from Jacob, we come to the 12 sons that we read about here, the second youngest being named Joseph. And Joseph was annoying to his brothers, to say the least. And there is always one annoying brother. Maybe you're it. He's so annoying that he's sold into slavery, eventually ending up in Egypt. Let's slow down. While in Egypt, God did not forget Joseph. In fact, as we soon discover, it was God's plan that Joseph would go to Egypt. See, while in this foreign land, with God's help, Joseph begins to rise the ranks. Promotion after promotion after promotion. And eventually, through a series of supernatural, God-ordained circumstances, Joseph would become second in command over all of Egypt. And so last week in Haggai 2, we looked at this idea of a signet ring, this ring which marked authority and power in a monarchy. In Egypt, Joseph wore the signet ring. He was that powerful, that authoritative, uh, that influential in this regime. But God did not intend blessing for Joseph alone. No, God planned Joseph's arrival in Egypt to save the lives, not just of many in the region, but specifically of Joseph's family, Israel. See, a famine was coming to town. A famine so severe, so devastating, so terrible, that it threatened to kill off the chosen people through whom the whole world were supposed to be blessed. And it seemed like in this moment, God's plans would be thwarted. Jacob, who God had renamed Israel, and his sons were facing extinction. So what would God do? God would take the evil of Jacob's sons who sold Joseph into slavery and redeem it for good. See, God told Joseph in Egypt that this famine was coming. And so for years beforehand, Egypt, under Joseph's management, stockpiled grain. So when the famine comes, eventually Jacob and his sons find themselves in Egypt. And Jacob, thinking his son Joseph has died, is met with the joy of discovering that his son is in fact alive. The brothers... Racked with guilt over what they did, expecting to find uh, retaliation in kind, are instead met with forgiveness. And all of them, because of God's providence and care and faithfulness, are met with a hearty meal as they celebrate together. The whole family now in Egypt. And here's what we must see this morning. 
The, the Genesis story that proceeds, that comes before the Exodus story, is a story of God's faithfulness. Where God is faithful over circumstances. Again, at the end of Genesis, Jacob dies and Joseph's brothers are worried that Joseph will now murder them. That he was just playing nice because dad was around, but now dad's dead and so maybe he'll have his retribution. But listen to how Joseph understands his life's circumstances. Genesis 50, 18 to 21 says this. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's a good question to ask ourselves sometimes. For am I in the place of God? Then he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God takes the evil that's outside of us and outside of our control and he redeems it for good. But it's not just the evil outside of us that he redeems. It's the evil inside of us that he redeems as well. See, Genesis ultimately is about God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. In, in case you're not convinced to read Genesis this week or, or next week, let me give you some highlights about just how terrible these chosen people are. Just how juicy this book is. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all liars. All tempted to not believe the promises that God has given them. And Jacob's sons were no better. Look at the names in Exodus 1. And just follow along for a second. Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi committed mass murder. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law. Issachar is lazy. Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad are all part of the plan, first to murder Joseph and then to sell him into slavery. And speaking of Joseph, while he finished well, in his early days he was an immature, tattling, boastful, robe-parading brat. <laughs> Do you see? Look at that list. Do you see? God keeps his promises despite our fickleness, despite our failures, despite our unworthiness. So Exodus 1 can either be read as a boring list of a bunch of names or we can read it in view of Genesis and suddenly those empty names speak across the pages of time to all of us who are just like the sons of Israel. We can see ourselves in those names. See our own unfaithfulness in those ancient names. And yet, nonetheless, despite our unfaithfulness, we have encountered a God who remains unwaveringly faithful. But God's not done. He's not content with redeeming one family. He wants to redeem every family. Come with me to the first character I want us to see today in our second point. This is the first major theme in the book of Exodus, and it's God's people. God's people. 
as we come to Exodus chapter 1, some time has passed since Joseph. We know from later in Exodus chapter 12 that the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt altogether from beginning to end was 430 years. So at this point, for almost four centuries, God's people have been in Egypt. Think about that. Four centuries under pagan oppression. Four centuries under pagan rule. Four centuries here. And in verse 7, the narrator goes out of his way using a multitude of multiplying words in describing Israel's multiplication. Look at verse 7. Doesn't it read just sort of excessive to you? But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. Literally, the land was swarming with them. They were everywhere. And looking back to Genesis, as we should do, we, we could say that Israel is living out the intended purpose of humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We could say that they're carrying out the command that God gave to Jacob when he said to him in a dream, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And while all these things are true, I think here in Exodus chapter 1, the narrator wants us to see in this multiplying language in Exodus, not necessarily the covenant that God made with the whole world, or even the covenant that he made with Jacob, but a promise God had given to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Abraham. God's covenant or promise that he made with Abraham essentially consists of two parts. The first part, one, I will bring you to a land. And the second part, two, I will make you a people. Now let's look at that second part now. I will make you a people. We read about this promise in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. I'd encourage you to go there this week and look at that. Genesis 12, 15, and 17. But we read about this in Genesis 17, four, uh, verses 4 to 6, more succinctly, where it says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. This is God speaking to Abraham. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Sound familiar? I will make you, again, exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Exodus 1, chapter 7, then, is the narrator saying, and God did what he said he would do. He did it. He's doing it. He's multiplying. But as we'll discover in Exodus, God is not just interested in filling the earth with people. He's not interested in multiplying a population that's indifferent to him or hostile to him. It's not just that he needs lots of people to tend to this big earth garden, though we should do that. The fruitful multitude that God desires is directly connected to God's exceedingly great, exceedingly lavish, exceedingly strong love. God wants many people and many different kinds of people to know the blessing of being called, as he says in Exodus 19, his treasured possession. 
his treasured possession. If you've seen the Disney film, uh, Prince of Egypt, which, by the way, if that's your point of reference for Exodus, you're going to be really disappointed throughout the series. I love that movie. Just, I think it's fantastic. I was seeing it to my kids the other day, to my wife. They did not appreciate it. Um, I love that movie. It's not very accurate, uh, but it's, it's a ton of fun. But, but in that film, that's in the side, uh, Moses repeats this refrain to Pharaoh, if you remember. Do you remember that refrain? The Lord says what? Let my people go. Let, what does he say? My people go. My people in other words, in Exodus, in this book, we come to know God as the one who says to us, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. What good news that is. The question you might be asking though is, how can this be? How is this possible? For the most part, I'm assuming here, but many of us, if not all of us, are not ethnic Israelites. Not biological children of Abraham. Uh, most of us, if not all of us, cannot follow our tree, our family tree, back to Jesus or David or, or, or Moses or Abraham. How do we become God's people? And the answer to that question is simple. We become God's people the same way Abraham became God's people, the same way Israel became God's people, by grace through Faith. See, the Apostle Paul will say in Galatians 3, as he envisions for us a wider group of people being brought in to who God's people are, that definition being transformed. He says in Galatians 3, Know then that it is those of faith, those who put their faith in Jesus, who are what? Sons of Abraham. Children of Abraham. In John 8, the ethnic children of Abraham, they're acting in a certain way and saying, well, we can act this way self-righteously and do whatever we want because Abraham's our dad. And Jesus says, no, your dad's the devil. True children of faith, they, they are the sons of Abraham. It turns out God's promise for his people was bigger than Abraham could foresee. That God's people would grow to include truly a multitude of nations comprised of every ethnicity and language. A, a glorious truth we'll see later in Exodus as the people of God come out of Egyptian captivity, spoiler, with a mixed multitude, Exodus says. It's a mixed group of people in the wilderness. It's a mixed group of people receiving the law. This year then, we are being invited to consider the simple truth this simple truth that we belong to God. This is one of those truths that is, it's shallow enough for kids to play in, but it's deep enough for elephants to drown in. You know what I mean? It gets simple to ascend to the intellectual idea that I belong to God. But begin living your day. Begin viewing your bank accounts. Begin viewing your relationships. Begin viewing everything through the lens that you belong to God. Oh, we'd be changed this year. Everything in Exodus, everything that we will see in the next little bit, everything flows from this simple point. 
God hears and sees Israel's oppression because his eyes and his ears are towards his people. God is eager to reveal more of his character to who? His people. God rescues not just everybody or not everybody, but slave, from his, his people from slavery. God provides water and bread in the desert for his people. He gives the law, the path of flourishing to his people. At the end of Exodus, we see who does God dwell amongst? His people. Christianity is not a crutch. Belonging to God is not a cop-out. It is life. It's everything. And up until this point, if you've defined yourself by belonging elsewhere, to the world, to your own desires, to the cultural sways and shifts of the moment, Jesus is inviting us to plant our feet on solid ground this year, to trust in the character of our faithful God, to rest knowing that not only is he bringing to himself a people, but he's also preparing a place for that people. This is our third point, last point. God's land. So God's faithfulness, God's people, and now we conclude God's land. Remember, God's promise to Abraham is twofold. One, I'll make you a people, and two, I'm preparing a land for you. I'll give you a land, a place. And so God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abraham, at, a, at the time of this call, did not have a land of his own, didn't have a place to call his own, nor did his sons after him. In Deuteronomy 26, during one of those moments when an Israelite was to recite their story, a story that includes the Exodus, it, it begins, this, this section begins almost like a country song. Speaking of Jacob, this wandering Aramean who was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. As Exodus begins then, while Israel has settled in this region in Egypt, there are still a people without a home. There are still a people without a roof. There are still a people without a place to call their own. Do you see that in our text today? Look at Exodus 1, 1-7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Again, Joseph was already in Egypt. These people, it says, grew exceedingly strong so that the land, well, what, what land? Not the land promised to them, so the land was filled with them. We should see then in the first seven verses of this book a tension the narrator wants us to see a tension. Here are a people without a home. So it's good that they're, that they're multiplying. It, it's good that they're you know, becoming many in number. But, but there's no home. There's no place. In our modern world where we flit from place to place, right? It's easy to overlook the pain of the Israelites. Why can't they stay in Egypt? Just send their kids to Egyptian schools, start a little cultural outpost there, a little Israel town in, in the city center, right? Why can't they just stay in Egypt? Why do they need their own land? Well, we could give a number of reasons. But chief among them, as we'll see next week, life in Egypt, just like life in Babylon, 
just like life under Roman rule, just like life in Vancouver, is not without its oppression, is not without its injustices, is not without its bad authority. But perhaps more fundamentally, we could say the people were made for land. They were made for land. The people were made for a blessing. The people were made for an inheritance. As one commentator put it, every Israelite knew that they would eventually be given a land they did not deserve, where none of them had in fact ever lived, a land seen by their distant ancestors, but not by any of the people of Israel alive at the time of the Exodus. Yet the place had been designed by God to be their home. God always brings to himself a people in order that he might place them in a land. The blessing of God is not ethereal or, or, or abstract. It's physical and real and tangible. We can eat it and we can sleep in it. A little later on, God will say concerning these people, I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and, and that's it? Then I'm done? Like find, find your own place to say? No, what does he say? And to bring them up out of that land, Egypt, where? To a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. A, a land overflowing with blessing. Like Israel, we too wait for God's land, don't we? A place designed by God to be our home. A place whispered about. A place we certainly don't deserve. A place of blessing and abundance. A place we cannot imagine. A place like Eden. A place like the garden city described in Revelation. And there the Apostle John sees this, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He says that he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In Genesis, God created a place and then created a people to fill that place. But in the new creation, God will first make his new people and then he will make the home where they live. Ever since Adam and Eve left the garden, every human being, not just Israelites, have had wanderers for fathers and mothers. And God's answer to our wandering is yes. I will bring you to myself. You will be my people. And yes, I am preparing a land for you, God's land where you will dwell. But as Jesus reminds us so often through his ministry, God brings about these things, his people, his land, his blessing, his abundance. How? Through his rule. Through his reign. With him as king. Jesus spoke of a coming kingdom. And as one scholar reminds us, a kingdom involves God's people 
in God's place, ready, under God's rule. Exodus, then, will be about learning what it means to belong to God as his subjects. As his subjects. And maybe this is shocking to you. Maybe you just visibly or internally recoiled. That sounds abhorrent. That's not palatable. I thought Exodus was about freedom. I thought Exodus was about liberation. I thought Exodus was about overthrowing the tyranny of the oppressor. Yes, yes, and yes. But then what? Then what? Then what? What do you do with your freedom? As Bob Dylan said himself, we've all got to serve somebody. Exodus then is not only about being saved from something, but saved to someone. That is, we've been saved from servitude to sin and Satan and other people and saved to serve the living God, to offer back to God what is already his. And what we'll discover is that there is no kingdom, there is no being God's people, there is no God's land without the king. Friends, no authority is not an option. No authority is not an option in our lives. We all have authorities in our lives, whether you know it or not. We can choose between bad authority and good authority, however. And what I invite you to consider over this year is that the God who reveals himself as being our God, the God who chases down a fickle people, who prepares a place for us in eternity, has shown himself time and time and time again, as these pages attest to, that he is good and that he is faithful. Jesus, the one who brings us out of our bondage to sin, guilt, and shame, will now and one day deliver us to the good and broad land that we were made for. Let's pray. So King Jesus... We humbly confess this morning uh, that we have sought your kingdom, that we have longed for things like justice and mercy and kindness and compassion, but we have sought those things apart from you. And we know that there is no kingdom, there is no blessing, there is no flourishing apart from the king. Help us then, Lord, as we journey through Exodus in this upcoming year, to see ourselves as the people who belong to you. And in belonging to you, would we enjoy the life that we were made for. We love you, Jesus. Speak to us as we journey together. In Jesus' name, amen.